One of the great delights is the weekend edition of the Wall Street Journal. It's great editorials, especially Peggy Noonan, and then they have a whole section that's a book review, an essay, the best essays. It's just a, a fun thing to do. So a few weeks ago, they had an essay on, entitled, The Fight to Fight the Winter Blues, Try a Dose of Nature. And it said there's a new app called Mappiness, M-A-P-P-I-N-E-S-S, that, that traces you when you're the most happy, thus the word mappiness. And they found out that 90, the, 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 excuse me, the vast majority of people are the most happy when they are out of doors. But the problem is that we spend 93% of our time indoors. And they went on and did some, released some studies. One study was, came out of the University of California at Irvine. I said this, nature also affects our social skills. A 2015 study published in the journal of personality and social psychology found that the people after gazing up at tall trees for just one minute from Berkeley, California, behaved more helpfully to others than people who looked at an unremarkable building. The reason, momentary awe. We suggest, says psychologist Paul Piff, who co-authored the study, quote, I think we can say pretty certainly that having a little bit of awe every day in your life would make you happier, kinder, and more compassionate. Momentary awe. And I read that and I thought, how much more should we have deep awe who realize that the heavens and the earth and the distant universes were made by a creator God whom we call Abba Father. That all things were made by Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. And in Christ, all things hold together. In Psalm 19, the psalmist has a psalm of praise regarding creation. This is what he writes. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day it pours out speech, and night to night it reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. He says, you know, the heavens just declare the glory of God. Speech pours out of it. And then as he talk, looks at the grandeur of creation, he talks about God's special revelation in the law, the law of Moses. And then he talks about the law. He says, the law of the Lord, verse 7, is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And he just talks about the power of the word. And then he comes to the last part of the psalm, which is a prayer for singleness of heart and vision and obedience. And this is what he says. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from known or presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's, it's a prayer for singleness of heart. It's, it's a rejoicing in creation, a glory in God, special revelation in the scripture, and then a prayer, O God, give me singleness of heart. And again, like I said earlier, how much more should we pray this in glory in creation? Because we know that in Christ, all things hold together. The psalmist was on this side of the incarnation, this side of the death and resurrection, this side of the ascension and the poured out Holy Spirit. We have everything. We have the glory of these things. So, so it's a prayer for singleness of heart as he sees the glory of God in creation and his word. 
Now, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. And we've started really by going to the end result of the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. A salt preserves, a salt, salt gives flavor. So you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, it's good for nothing. You said to be thrown out and trampled by men. You're the light of the world. People don't light a candle and put it under a basket. They put it on a stand so it can give light to everyone in the house. In the very same way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. So, so we're to be salt and light. And the question has been, as we've looked at this, is how do we maintain our saltiness? How do we keep our light bright and shining? And, and the answer is the Beatitudes. Eight character traits that should mark the child of God. And these eight character traits lead to a glorious testimony of Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being poor in spirit is being aware of, of our sin and, and, and fully cognizant of the fact that we're undone without Christ. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness means you're teachable, you're approachable, you understand that Christ must be central. And then as you have those, it's like walking up a stair. And once you hit that area, then, then the overflow is, as you understand your neediness, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. John Calvin, in, in speaking about this area, said this. He says, we cannot seriously aspire to him before we become displeased with ourselves. We cannot seriously aspire to him before we become displeased with ourselves. In the same little section of the Institutes, he says, so, so the knowledge of ourselves not only arouses us to seek God, but also leads us by the hand to find him. Now, think about this. We cannot aspire to really hunger and thirst to know the living God in his triune glory until we are displeased with ourselves. And that's why you can't take the Sermon on the Mount, I'll be attitude, out of context. They hang together, poor in spirit, mourn, meek, hunger and thirst. So, so and we live in a culture that is all about self-affirmation and telling people how great you are and saying you're the master of your fate, you're the captain of your soul, so forth and so on. So it sounds just strange to our ears, but it's fully biblical. And it is the way of blessing because he says, happy or blessed or joyful are those who are poor in spirit. Happy or blessed or joyful are those who mourn and those who are meek. And, and, then, and then the manifestation of that, the outward manifestation, once you've walked through that, path. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And I said last week that mercy is the impulse, the God-given impulse to identify with people in their need and to meet their needs. It's the impulse, the God-given impulse to care for other people. And I said last week that, that mercy is a statement of my salvation, my regeneration. That if I am to receive mercy, it will be obvious that I'm a merciful person. And I was preaching to myself. And then we come to this beatitude this morning. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What a statement. In fact, I think it's one of the greatest statements in the Bible. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, taste and experience a growing awareness of the living God. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones was one of my favorite preachers, and he died in 1981 or two. He was a preacher in London from Wales, a physician who went to the ministry. He's written a wonderful little book called The Sermon on the Mount. And he describes this, discusses this beatitude. And this is what he says. It's very interesting. He said, in spite of all that has been written about this beatitude, the meaning of this verse still eludes us. <laughs> Our best plan is just to grasp something of its central message and emphasis. I think he's right. This verse, is, it eludes us. It's just so grand and so glorious. You're going, wow, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So I'm just going to give you a few shots. It's going to be one long exhortation with some applications built in. Okay. I believe that pure in heart refers to singleness of mind and action. A singleness of mind in the pursuit of God in his Trinitarian beauty. The knowledge or the seeing or the tasting of the living God brings joy and purpose and happiness to my life. Okay? So blessed are the pure in heart refers to the single-minded, in spite of our calling, wherever we are, whatever our station in life, is the single-minded Pursuit of God that says, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, hallowed be your name. You get the glory. You get the honor. It's the single-hearted pursuit of God. And, and as you do that, there's a sense of joy and blessing and laughter and fulfillment because you have purpose as you go hard for him. So it's, it's a single-minded pursuit. Wherever you are, mechanic, attorney, physician, uh, housewife teacher, whatever, in your calling, in your student, is saying, I want your kingdom to come in my life. I want to go for you. Now, Psalm 86, again, Psalm 86 was written uh, when the psalmist is in deep trouble. In fact, he says, here's the historical situation. He says, verse 14, O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seek my life. That's a bad place to be. Ruthless men are seeking to kill me. And so he has this prayer to the Lord, and, and, and he, he starts off by just saying, you're glorious. Now, he's being pursued, being hunted down for his life. And this is what he says, preserve my life, for I am godly. Verse 2, save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Verse 4, gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. You're being hunted by some men who want to take your life and his prayers. Lord, make me happy in you. Gladden my soul. Then he goes on, he says, oh, oh, Lord, you are good and forgiving. You are abounding in steadfast love. Verse 8, there's none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. Verse 10, for you are great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. And then the high point of the psalm is this request in verse 11. Teach me. Your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. Now, to me, that's singleness of heart. That's, that's having a heart that is, that is pure. It's, it's a singleness of purpose. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. These people cry out, Lord, teach me your way, and I'll walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. 
And again, the psalmist is praying this before the coming of Christ. He saw the coming Messiah very dimly. He's saying, I want to experience you. I'm being pursued by ruthless men. And my prayer is, Lord, let me see your face. And then the book of of 1 Peter. In 1 Peter in the New Testament, chapter 1, Peter glories in the greatness of Christ and all that Christ has done for us. A salvation is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. Uh, He talks about the power of the Scripture. And then he comes to chapter 2, and he says this. Therefore, or so, get rid of all malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander, and like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, since you have tasted that the Lord is good. He says, he, says, he says, church in Asia Minor, getting ready to go into persecution. You have tasted, experienced that the Lord is good. And because you've tasted of his goodness, do two things. Get rid of malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Just get rid of them. And as you do that, long for the pure milk of the word that by it you can grow in your salvation. Years ago, I was around a little baby. And the little baby started crying. And the mama said, you know, my baby cries most usually when he has a dirty diaper or he's hungry. And I said, I do too. I, I cry out when I am uncomfortable or hungry. And so Peter is saying that, that part of being a child of God is you hunger for the Word. And as you hunger for the Word, you grow in your salvation and you get rid of malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander. In other words, you're single-minded, pure of heart. Purity of heart involves getting rid of sin. I'm going to say that very strongly. But I think The larger meaning is I'm single-minded and getting rid of sin is part of being single-minded, but the glad pursuit. So so as I say this, I thought, ask you some questions. Are you tasting the goodness of the Lord today? A goodness that compels you to go hard for him. Are you enjoying the Abba, Father, embrace of the living God that gives you a heart that sings? Are you gladdened by the knowledge of the forgiveness of sins? Uh, Gladdened by the knowledge that your sins are dealt with. I thought thought many times, if I could just get up and quote the last part of the Apostles' Creed, every day it should cause me to rejoice and be glad. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the universal church. I believe in the communion of the saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Isn't that something? My sins are forgiven. I have the hope of heaven. Therefore, I am glad. Here's my illustration. We live in a beautiful city on the coast. It's June. It's a cool day for June. So you go to the beach, low tide, clear day. You set up, kids are building sandcastles, surfers, dogs running. It's a great day. The birds are singing. It's just, it's just melodious. 
and you're enjoying it, and you sit back, it's a little nippy, maybe 80 degrees, 79, 80, 81 degrees, pretty early morning, 9, 10 o'clock, and you have on a long sleeve cotton shirt because you're a little bit chilly, and as you sit there, you feel a cloud coming over the sun. And all of a sudden, that cool breeze becomes uncomfortable. And you think to yourself, I should have a jacket because I'm a little cold. I should have on have some slacks to put on because I'm a little cold. And if you've been swimming and you're waiting for the sun to dry you off, you're really miserable. In a way, that's what sin does. There's the glory of the living God. There's his manifest beauty and, and wonder. And sin comes in and it just clouds the vision. And it obscures our ability to enjoy the fullness of God. That's why Peter says, get rid of these things. Just get rid of these things. And I ask you, are you tasting the goodness of the Lord? Are you enjoying the Abba Father embrace of the, of the living God? Are you doing these things because you see the ultimate beauty that's found in the cross of Jesus Christ? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, experience God, taste God. I want to know God in his fullness. I want Holy Spirit power to be in my life. I want to enjoy him and be used of him. I have a habit that's, I think some, I've told some of you this, but I, I observe death days of some of my heroes because they finished well. For example, a few weeks ago in January was the death day of Winston Churchill. This past Thursday was the death date of B.B. Warfield, one of my favorite theologians, a Princeton theologian. Uh, in a couple of weeks, March 3rd, is the death date of Jonathan Edwards, who died in 1758 at the age of 54. So yesterday was the death date of Martin Luther. Martin Luther died 471 years ago yesterday, the age of 62, Luther, 62. And, and so some of you know the story. Let me tell you the quick story about Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a German. He was raised in a privileged home. His father was a, a hardworking entrepreneur who advanced socially and economically, and he wanted his son to come in and take over his, his work and also to be an attorney. And Luther was going to uh, law school and had a cataclysmic experience in a forest in the midst of a thunderstorm. And he cried out, St. Anne, if you save me, I will become a monk. And he was saved from the electric storm. He felt compelled to go in the, to be a monk. His father was deeply, deeply disappointed. Uh, caused a rupture in the family. Luther goes in to the uh, monastery, Augustinian monastery. And Luther really believed that if he just worked hard enough and fasted hard enough and really literally beat his body enough and confessed his sins enough, then somehow God would accept him. And the more he worked and the more he confessed and the harder he tried and the more he beat himself and the longer he confessed, he, he realized he couldn't measure up to a holy God. In fact, during this time of deep, deep depression and catharsis, one of his fellow seminarians said to him, Luther, do you love God? And Luther said this. He said, I didn't say it out loud, but I said it in my heart. I do not love God. I hate him. I hate him. Because a God that has these standards and I can never measure up, I will never, ever get there. How can I ever love a God who looks upon me with such enmity? And then he studied the Bible. And it says in Romans that the just shall live by faith. The Bible says that what we can never do for ourselves, Jesus did for us on the cross. That Christ died on the cross for our sins. 
that sin has separated us from God, but Christ, God in the flesh, died on the cross as the Lamb of God for our sins. And Luther said, as I came came to understand that, I felt as if I was born again. And here's a direct quote. He said, and the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through the doors of paradise because he said, my sins were forgiven. And a few years later, Martin Luther, the reformer, wrote one of the most celebrated hymns in the history of the church entitled, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And in that hymn, he says, in part this, let goods and kindred, or family, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Now, I, I believe this. I may be wrong. I'll find out when I get to heaven. I think Luther may have written that hymn in a giddy, laughing spirit. Because Luther walked around with a sword of Damocles, you know, the sword of the one hair, with a sword of Damocles over his head for year after year after year, thinking, I'm going to be killed today. He ultimately got married, and he and his wife had six children. But, but he, he says, you know, let, let goods, what I have, and my family go, because they're not lasting, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I believe in the forgiveness of sin. So what he's saying is, I want to taste the goodness of God, the things that really last. I want to be this type of man, Luther's saying. And so when I think about this cloud and clouds that obscure the sun and sin that clouds my life. I think of the trioca of sins in 1 John 2, where John says, don't love the world or the things of the world, for all that is in the world is not of the Father, but it's of the world. He says that includes the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And you step back and you say, you know, the, the lust of the flesh, the, the momentary buzz of an alcohol abuse or pornography, or, or something that's fleshly and carnal just obscures the beauty of Jesus. It puts you in, it puts you in a place of, 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 of sorrow, and you feel dirty and unloved. And it's just push those things away. See, you can push those things away. Or, or the, the, the lust of the eyes. You know, we live in this culture that says we want more and more and more and a culture that says if you make $170,000 a year, you live in a $230,000 lifestyle. Or if you make $60,000 a year, you live in a $90,000 lifestyle. And you just are continuously, you, you can't give to the poor like you want to. And you don't tithe and you don't honor the Lord. And you've bought the insane, insipid dream of more and more and more that puts you in bondage. You say, you know, just get that out of my life. Get, just get it out of my life. Let me see the beauty and the grandeur of Christ. And then the pride of life, the pride of life, I just want to be better than them or, or seen as more winsome than them or I want to rejoice over them or, or I want to be unforgiving until they come back and they say, I was wrong. And so if you have that type of attitude and you're unforgiving, you're unkind and you're, you hold on to, to, to little things, it just clouds the vision of Jesus in your life. Now, I've been involved in numerous conflicts in my life. And, and, and three times out of 425, I've been right. 
And, and so have you ever been in a conflict and you really were right? If you went to a court of law, they would say, you were right. And you're not going to be reconciled until they come and say, I was wrong, I'm sorry. And so you just you live like this. And then they come to you and they say, uh, I was wrong. How did it feel? Not that good. I, mean, I was hoping for, you know, just cartwheels, ninja warrior leap. It doesn't happen. It just, it just doesn't happen. I want to get things out that obscures the beauty of, of and the reality of Christ in my life. I, I, I want to continually make adjustments, church. Because I, because I want to be able to come before the Lord and say, Lord, you say, happy, joyful, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I want to taste your goodness. I want to pursue you and know you. I want to get rid of, of these things. I, I, I want to know you. See, this has everything to do with the stewardship of life. Has everything to do with how I live my days. The stewardship of life that says, may nothing cloud my vision. Has everything to do with repentance. Has everything to do with daily living. Has everything to do with taking the gospel to the nations and to the neighborhoods. Because I want to represent him and I want to experience the fullness of joy in my life. There's a man named Jonathan Edwards and he wrote a, a sermon entitled, Blessed Are the Pure in Heart on this passage. And this is what he says. This is really worth thinking about. Man's true happiness is his perfection and true excellency. When any reasonable creature finds that his excellency and his joy are the same thing, then he has come to right and real happiness and not before. <clears throat> when, when I understand that my excellency as a person and my following the Lord are the same thing, Edward says, that is real happiness. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Are you enjoying the presence of the Lord? Are you relishing the embrace of Abba Father? Are you getting the clouds out that obscure your vision of the greatness of God? Are you pressing into the kingdom? There is a battle fought in 1415 called the Battle of Agincourt. The British army had gone to France, and the army had been racked with intestinal viruses. They were all, many of them were sick. There were about six to 8,000 British soldiers and about 30,000, 25 to 30,000 French soldiers. Six to one, the odds were six to one. And the British forces were sick, and they were fighting in a foreign country, and it was bad. And in the battle that ensued in 1415, October 25th, the British introduced something called the longbow. And the French just had the crossbow. Longbow distance, crossbow short. And in that battle that ensued, the British won a glorious victory. They lost 600 men, and the French lost 7,000 men. 1,500 were taken prisoner. It was a great day in the history of the British Empire. So about a century and a half later, there's a guy born in 1564 named William Shakespeare. And he wrote a play about the Battle of Agincourt. And it's a great play. And, and the, the best part of the play is 
a speech given by Henry V, the king of England. They're getting ready to go into battle. They're outnumbered six to one. They really have little hope for victory. And in the play, Henry V's cousin, Westmoreland, says this. Oh, that we had here but one ten thousandth of those men in England that do no work today. In other words, just one ten thousandth of the men here would have a better chance. And in the play, Henry V jumps up on a stump and gives the best speech I think I've ever read. I'll just read part of it to you. He says, what's, what's he that, that wishes such a thing? And he says, by Jove, I am not covetous of gold or your garments. Such outward things dwell not in my desires. But if it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. That's a great line. And then he goes on, he says, today is St. Crispian's Day. And in the future, you'll stand on tiptoe and you'll say to your friends and your family, tomorrow is St. Crispian's Day. And then you will lift your sleeves and you'll show your scars and you'll say, and I was at Agincourt and I fought with Henry V on St. Crispian's Day. And these names that are common will become commonplace. The names we say today, like Salisbury and Talbot and Gloucester, they'll become common names because these names will live in English history. Then he says this. And gentlemen, now abed in England shall think themselves accursed that they were not here and they will hold their manhood cheap. He says, you know, the, the men that aren't here with us today, the men that aren't going for it, they're going to curse the day they weren't here to see this glorious victory, and they'll hold their manhood cheap. And I thought, God, give me the spirit that has a single-eyed desire to honor the Lord in my calling. May I say with Henry V, if, if, if it is a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. If it is a, a sin to covet the knowledge and the grandeur and the gladness and the laughter of God in my soul, may I be considered to be an offending soul before you because that's what I want. And that's birth as I realize I've got to have Christ. I've got to walk. I, I need him desperate that in Christ all things hold together. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They will experience the gladness and the laughter of the Father by the power of the Spirit through the reality of the cross in their lives. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the testimony of the Bible. Thank you that it's just, it can be read and understood and applied. And Lord, this is a passage that has a depth that I can't begin to get at. And yet you said, Almighty God in the flesh, blessed, happy, joyful are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those who are single-minded, who want to honor you, who want to please you, blessed. So, so God, we are men and women who are indeed poor in spirit. We mourn over our sin because we see our brokenness and our need we say, come, Lord Christ, we walk in humility and meekness. And Lord, as we hunger and thirst for you, please fill us up with the knowledge of Christ and make us merciful, 
gospel-loving people and make us single-minded, I pray. Have your way in our lives. Lord, bless us this week. Let us speak for Christ. Bless us this week and give us a heart to know more about reaching our communities and the nations with the good news of Christ as we have our Global Impact Conference. For we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.